Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. I'm Kenny Holmes. Robert Kraft in the house. This is the big season finale. Woo! I'm a little emotional. I know, it's a little sad, Well, right? it is kind of, you know, seriously, it's been an unbelievably great season. I mean, season one was wonderful, of course. Season two, I think, was just exciting in some ways because we had the opportunity to talk to some up-and-comers who have exploded on the scene. Yeah, it's like it unfolded right before our it eyes really on did. the show, which has been very cool. Um, again, this is Score the Podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. The big season finale on the show today, Dave Porter, composer yeah. of El Camino, the Breaking One Bad movie. One of my movies. favorites. And um, we're also joined by Matt Schrader and hey, Carol. Matt Schrader, composer um, Carol. The, the momentum has been building the movie is out today, and um, we've had to wait all this time, and we're so excited to be able to talk with Dave. Don't worry, we're not going to reveal any of the movie no spoilers. spoilers. Um, so hopefully you're listening to this on the way to the theater or before you uh, pop on the film on Netflix, um, but uh, I'm, I'm but we super do. excited. It was interesting. This is the first episode that we've had where we've actually delayed, but only by a few days, but we've delayed the release to try to have a, a real, you know, candid conversation with Dave um, about El Camino, about a lot of his work with Vince Gilligan, a lot, of, you know, a lot of these really interesting things that we couldn't have talked about uh, if we had released this just a few days before. Yeah, and so it took. Really uh, we want to thank the people at White Bear too, um, because without that, we wouldn't have been able to make this happen because the. Netflix was really tight on this film. As you can imagine. And yeah. yeah. And I mean, if you think about it too, the movie itself was shot with no news of it being made. And then I think Bob Odenkirk slipped it out in an interview and said, yeah, it's already shot. And everyone was like, what? Um, so it's, it's very surprising that they were able to pull this off. And um, the, the ads for, um, or not the ads, the, the, the PR campaigns they've been doing have been really cool. They've been doing like scavenger hunts around all these big cities and, Aaron Paul and some of the other characters from uh, the Breaking Bad world have been showing up. So, and Dave has been with Vince and and Breaking Bad and now Better Call Saul from the start. Yeah, like that's been his his big kind of uh, uh, you know it, how he came to be really kind of an A lister. Um, now he does a bunch of other shows, does the Blacklist. He does you know a handful of others, also some movies. Um, but that was kind of his start. So it's cool to see that all kind of come full circle for him and now there's this uh this big top secret you know hugely anticipated uh movie yeah and he uses a lot of really unique instruments and style uh in if you watch breaking bad or better call saul you know the music is really cool and different and very percussion heavy so i'm excited to ask him about some of the instruments i and think dave i found in anticipation of speaking to him i started to listen to more episodes of breaking bad not just watching watch them but listen dave is an underappreciated film composer that yeah. is he really maybe because he's been inside vince gilligan's world and not doing 16 movies a year and oh he's out there with everyone because he's really focused on these one uh series of projects he doesn't get the exposure maybe that some of his contemporaries do but he should, and although he he's will. coming up in the world, he sure yeah. is. <laughs> he sure well, is. Well, of course, there's the greatest indication of all of great career success, which is he's appeared 
or will be appearing as a guest on Score. That's podcast. right. And can That's I just say, true. as kind of a because we're we've gone through two full seasons, we've had forty guests, forty full episodes. You can go back and and listen to each one. Not a single repeat so far. Now, there's some guests that are great that I think would be great to get on the show again. And please, you know, tweet us at Score the Podcast if there's anyone you want to hear again. Um, but uh, but really impressive so far. And like we're we're really getting inside the heads of a lot of these composers working on big projects, really big creativity, um, pushing the boundaries, the musical boundaries, both established people and a lot of people that are now just kind of breaking into uh, this mainstream thing, which I is would a really cool experience. Even go mm-hmm. so far as to say, having been in the film music game for more than a minute, that we are seeing a sea change right now and experiencing it that I don't think we anticipated when we started the podcast, which is there's a certain old guard, the varsity, who remain certainly the varsity, the real maestros who have done hundreds of films. But right in front of us is this new vanguard of composers. I mean, I was sent an email this morning that's an article coming up in Esquire magazine that says how Hilder Goodnadotter is changing film music. And I, my first thought was, she was our guest two months ago. We, yeah. we, we were mm-hmm. by accident or on purpose. Hilder had, I think Chernobyl had just come out. Yeah, it came out. It was like that second episode. And so, that was kind of a surprise to us, too, because we knew she was going to be working on this film, Joker, which I know Kenny and I have seen again. No spoilers. We won't spoil anything. Robert still hasn't seen it, so we don't want to spoil it for him. I haven't seen it. Carol either. hasn't seen it either. Yeah. But um, but huge breakout hit, you know that came out this last weekend, and, uh, and the just music breaking is all kinds of records for October in the box office. Yep. Yeah, and the music, you're right, is a huge part of that, and that's all Hilder. Yeah. So the music in that movie was so impactful. I, and I don't want to say too much, but it, it it was so it made such a big impact on and how, how I received that film. Um, wow. I haven't. I don't know that I've watched a movie in a long time where the music made just as much of an impact as the acting. That's like, like I mean, some, at, at times there are films where like there's a musical moment, but the music was a full on character in the entire film, and it it really changed. I mean, if you put something else in there, that movie would have felt so different. Um, I'm really wow. curious. I'm going to uh, speak to Hilder next week, actually, at the World Soundtrack Awards, and I am. Really interested to find out how Todd Phillips, the director, was it just off of seeing Chernobyl? I don't know what prompted him with all the great composers that you'd think he'd be interested in for Joker. He went to a very unique source and a very unique talent. And hit a home run. And hit it out of the park. So, and that, I understand uh, Joaquin Phoenix drew maybe some inspiration too. Am I? Yeah, she. Well, she. You know, it's funny in our interview. If you go back and listen, um, she goes, "Can I? Can I say this?" And we're like, uh, <laughs> "Yes." <laughs> she was. She was a little concerned about whether she would get in trouble for saying the fact that she gave music to Todd Phillips and it was played on set to help inspire Joaquin Phoenix's creativity and. Um, and not, bring out a performance there, which he'll probably win an Oscar for. And he went out and and told that story on like all the late night shows and um, gave her props, which is really cool. That's awesome. And, yeah. and he he mentioned that he had never done that process before, and he's somebody who's known for being really immersed in a character and um, you know needing any sort of inspiration like that to get to the next level of uh, the character. And 
he said that that was the first time he had ever done that before. So. I wonder if we are going to be lucky enough to have, I don't know what half of an EGOT is, an EO, because she just won the Emmy, <laughs> and I think she may win the Oscar I for the score. I think referred to as an EO. <laughs> so yes, I think you're onto something. It sounds like Iceland. Um, I got to tell you though, going to see that movie it was pretty creepy because you know there's been all these weird like security scares and stuff. And we went to go watch it on on Friday night, and yeah, you had a really interesting. Experience. It was bizarre. There was three suits like with earpieces. I felt like it was like a like the FBI or something, and right. they were just kind of making eye contact with everyone in a creepy way as we walked in. And then during the entire movie, there was actual guards on each side of the theater standing against the wall, like arms crossed. And it was like security at a sporting event where like they don't watch the game, they watch the crowd. <laughs> and the people were just staring. It was, it made, I don't know if it intensified the movie for me a little bit. Well, but it must have somehow. I yeah. was, my adrenaline was going so much. Anytime anyone stood up, it was like, uh, what's going on? What's going on? <laughs> it was really weird. And I don't know, I've heard, I, I tweeted it out after it happened. And a couple people had said that there was some security in different places, but it made me nervous. Like, did, were you in a big theater? Was no, it, it was a small theater. It wasn't, I mean, it was a couple fr- hundred seats or something. It was or? Friday night. Not even. No, oh, okay. it's just, it's one of these smaller theaters that's been outfitted with like recliner right, chairs. Right, 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 Um Not a, not a Alamo style, but um, the big squishy chairs. So it right. wasn't, there wasn't a lot of seats, but it was just really strange. And then after the movie, we were like, Whew. well, we got some cool uh, statistics on Joker and also who Joker crushed literally at the box office joker broke as everyone knows broke records for all box office records That's right yeah for october for this kind of film uh it's over 200 million I by think, the way the weekend don't i know this has been said but don't bring your kids to this movie <laughs> yeah they, well they it, remi- keep in that. mind it is an r-rated movie so it's not meant, it's more it's not than a comic book thing for it's kids. more than r-rated though if you've I yikes mean, yeah it's <laughs> I, I saw a lot of articles, like, no, and they're like, the box office killed it, and like a certain percentage were children. It was like, oh, yeah, no. that is always a little weird. That is weird. Yeah, I don't know what parenting advice was given <laughs> out, but uh, this it, isn't the Avengers, right? It hit uh, the first figure was two thirty four mil opening weekend worldwide, and I read this morning that was underestimated by sixteen. So it's wow. it's over two fifty quarter of a mil. Right off the bat. Which for people who don't know the box office game, the studio, Hollywood studio game, that's pretty damn good, especially for October. Yeah, and it'll head to, of course, into the upper reaches. I don't know if it beats some of the biggies, but some of the films that unfortunately were up against it, Abominable, which did very well. Animated movie, right? Animated. I don't think they had armed guards at Abominable screenings. Well, and nobody took their kids to it because they took it to Joker. (laughs) Oh, God, that's terrible. (laughs) I know that Ad Astra is out there. Yep. And it's supposed to be very good. I wish I could tell you I've seen it, but I'd like to see it. And it's just hard for them because... They sometimes in movie studios, they say there's a big black hole in the marketplace, which is sucking in all the business. And that's what the Joker is. Yep. So people are actually going to the Joker when it's sold out. They have to go to another movie. Well, theater. part of that, that hype is created by the hype, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, oh, everyone's, it's scary. There's, there's security concerns we why we have to go see this well you don't want to be the person in the office on monday when someone says hey have you seen joker and a couple weeks in a row you're saying it's the kind of buzz that you can't even 
no marketing campaign can Can't create that kind of buzz. It's like when Apple has a new iPhone yeah. and every news outlet in the world covers the lines of people mm -hmm. lined up for several days. That's free advertising. And there's By been the way, such a charge behind any the marketing. score listeners want to send me a new iPhone just as a token of their affection or appreciation. <laughs> I don't think we can do that. I'm thinking hard about getting one, but if it just appeared as a gift, ooh, that looks really cool. Um, I'm seeing a new iPhone here on the table. <laughs> so coming up this week, of course, El Camino, which we talked about. Also, Gemini Man, Will Smith versus Will Smith. Looks very cool. And Ang Lee. And Ang mm -hmm. Lee, the great one. And Lauren Balf, who's been one of our guests, of course. And so uh, he's scoring it. But wow, I wonder how they're feeling about coming up on Joker weekend number two. It's gotta I got to ask you, too, this because this is weird, and I don't know if this has happened before. But I think you're going the same place I was. El Camino is is. A big, uh, there's a lot of anticipation for this, but they're doing this dual release in theater and in Netflix. So are they immediately eliminating themselves from the big awards shows? No, actually, first of all, just so that we're all clear, and this might be a review of information that's already known, to be eligible for the film awards, particularly the Academy Awards, you have to appear for seven consecutive nights in certain a certain number of right. commercial I know it's, theaters. It's like L.A. and New York, at least one at, theater. Right, for a week. But so there, I thought you couldn't hit the streaming market until clearly the that, theatrical was First done. of all, that's a huge issue. What if you release both? It's been a big argument. Um, I imagine that without somebody sending me the memo, it's been resolved to some degree. I know um, that's also going to be an issue with uh, Scorsese's uh, Irishman, the Irishman yep. coming mm -hmm. up. On both. And that's something that's an Oscar favorite in almost every department. I actually wonder about the economics of if you appeal to Netflix subscribers and at the same time you have it on screens in your local cinema, are they losing money? Are they making yeah, money? Yeah, you are kind is of that, sabotaging is that some not of the potential. Is issue? You just want as many well, people to see it? I got to say, and I don't know if this is a strategy, strategy thing, but the movie is all the screenings they have for... El Camino or sold out everywhere. Right. It's very limited, which they're, is kind they're of surprising. Doing it, it's kind of like uh, coming from someone who buys sneakers from time to time or, or uh, limited edition vinyl. They, they're doing this like rollout where they, they announce a screening, it sells out, then they announce another one. And so it's like, you got to get it. You got to get in line before it sells out. So I don't know if this is just to get the awards qualification or are they slowly rolling out an actual... Wide well, the, release. the really interesting big trend that I see is that um, this is maybe one of the first movies that's coming out that's going to actually kind of come. It's on a different platform for most people, and it's coming out on a Friday against movies that are coming out in theaters against other action movies. If I was, uh, you know, Paramount and Skydance coming out with Gemini Man on October 11th and then. Two months ago, Netflix says, oh, by the way, October 11th, why don't you everybody stay home and watch our watch the Breaking Bad movie instead? I I would not be happy. I'd say that's taking people out of the theaters to go watch something else. So there's cross-platform uh, competition now. It's also kind of interesting. It's also weird that people are opting to pay when we're in this world now where everyone's saying like, oh, are theaters in trouble, the streaming services? This right. movie's coming out for free. You can watch it on your couch, yet everyone's buying a ticket to go to the theater. It's kind of a cool thing that's happening. It is, here. and Netflix kind of is calling the tune these days. I guess they can do pretty much how they want it. There must be a strategy that 
says this is good. Do you know, is it day and date? Is it on Netflix the same day that yes. it appears in theaters? Yes. Right this now. That's going to be a really interesting. We will have to kick off season three with an evaluation of how that worked. <laughs> Stay tuned in several months from now for the evaluation of the movie coming out There was today. also a, I, I got to say real quick, quick shout out. There was also another movie that came out and uh, Carol did some music in it. That's Congrats, right. Carol. Yeah, my first ever Composer feature Carol. film work. Yeah. Congratulations. That was very, it was very exciting. Called The Climbers? Yeah, it's a movie called The Climbers. It's a, it's a Chinese production. Um, it, Jackie it's Chan? Cool. Jackie Chan's on it. Wow. Some of, um, some of the biggest Chinese um Movie stars are on it. It's so cool. Uh, very yeah, cool. Is very your proud name of it. at the end? I think it might have been uncredited. Okay. Um, but that can happen. Actually, it was way too fast for me to keep up. I was also way too excited about it. But I was like, <laughs> yeah, I got yeah. to see it at a nearby AMC and... That was a very, very cool stand, experience. Could you stand up in the middle of the show and say, I wrote <laughs> that this. That was my music. Was I, uh, yeah. I wish I could. But yeah. It was great. a very sad scene, so I didn't want to be like... <laughs> Oh, yeah. it's my music. <laughs> I saw some people crying, so oh, I was that's like, good. I, oh, my music worked. It's worked. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Very cool. Well, congrats to Carol. And thank you. Um, we just want to take a minute to thank all our listeners for uh, sticking with us this season and spreading the word and, and keep doing so uh, while we're away. You can catch up on all the episodes. And um, we do want to take a minute also to tell you about Spitfire Audio, our presenting partner, if you're a composer listening right now, you probably already know about Spitfire, but they make sample libraries with different music instruments to help elevate your music. If you're an aspiring composer or a musician and you want to write something, and we have a special deal for our listeners, exclusive. Tell us about it. And it's a limited time offer. If you go to SpitfireAudio.com, select the package you want to purchase and use the promo code SCORE, you save a third off the price. 33 and a third percent off. That's huge. That's huge. And they have all different types of packages. The Hans Zimmer package, um, which is a bunch a really cool strings package from Hans Zimmer. Uh, they worked with the Bernard Herman estate to do uh, a, a different type of instrument package. And then um, coming up later this month, the BBC Symphony Orchestra package. And these are all different packages. Um, just some of the ones to highlight. They also have Albion One, which is kind of their mm-hmm. starter kit. Get the whole... Uh, orchestra all the different sounds at your fingertips and um you really can't ever have too many instruments in your library and you really can't. It's, it's recorded uh at air lindhurst mm-hmm. air studios in london where i will be next week mm. wow. so i will be standing there are they going to record your voice for, a, actually, for a pack? i guess it's time to <laughs> can we have a little breaking news oh this is amazing <laughs> the, the robert craft package <laughs> which will be Scat singing in various keys. You can play songs like this. No, not really. No, but you could actually. It's the Who's no the Boss really package. I like it. songs it's, like that. It's a lot of cues from Who's the Boss. Um, um, so yeah, go to SpitfireAudio.com. Yep. Use the promo code SCORE and save while you can. Who knows how long this offer will last? It's a limited time. And um, coming up after the break... Dave Porter. Can't wait. El Camino. Yeah. The movie's out today. Go watch it and um, get psyched with us. Again, while no we... spoilers. So yeah. you can listen. If you haven't watched it yet, keep listening. We'll see you just after the break. Hey, I'm Robert Kraft. I'm here with Kenny Holmes. Are you getting all that additional cool material that we have online for Score the Podcast? Kenny, where do they find it? Twitter, at Score the Podcast. Instagram, at Score Movie. Facebook, Score a Film Music Documentary. 
If you're not following, you're missing out. We have behind-the-scenes videos, and we do giveaways, and sometimes we retweet Jordan Bieber. Oh, Jordan Bieber's there. BTS, behind the scenes. Go check us out. Hi, this is Nathan Barr. You're listening to Score the Podcast, and now back to the show. Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio. It's a huge day. It's our season finale, and we're excited about our guest because today yeah. El Camino comes out. Dave Porter so joining excited. the show today. Dave, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. The My audience pleasure. is pleased to see you. <laughs> no pressure. It's the end of it. our most successful season. So, not that we want you to step up of to the, the plate. Two, this is definitely yes. yes. Uh, you you programmed poorly. But oh, <laughs> I don't know. We've been we'll excited about this do. one. Um, it's an exciting day. Are you are you feeling juiced about the the big release? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Very very proud of this project. Uh, and you know, part of it is a is relief too. Anything huh. you've worked on this long and uh, has been under wraps this long, uh, it's just good to get it out there and share it with everybody. Yeah, it was a big headline about how somehow they were able to shoot this entire movie with nobody knowing about it. And I think was it Odenkirk that let it slip eventually. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure because, you know, I, as you guys know, the composers are sort of in the dark and the last <laughs> folks to be involved in anything and the last person told anything at all. So uh, it was all just speculation and rumor to me, honestly, while they were even shooting it. I, I had some, some inklings about it, but I didn't know and I didn't ask. Uh, Do until you remember roughly when the first you heard of this was? I'm curious whether, is that something that Vince or anybody else loops you in early and says, hey, we might have something coming at some point? <laughs> yeah, or, no, I mean, I, you're jogging my memory. I, I don't think it was any, it was definitely this year. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it was, uh, they they had it well in hand. Uh, I mean, like I said, I it's a small crew of us, and we've all worked together for a very long time, and uh, you know, we, th- it was not a huge surprise to me that it was coming, but I didn't know much about it. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I imagine that and, is both a concern if your schedule was such that you had to say, "Wow, I wish you told me earlier." And on the other hand, these are your mates. <laughs> you're <and> smiling. So, <laughs> so, yeah, no concern in all honesty, because I mean, you know, I could have been working for Spielberg and I would have dropped it for Vince's That's project. That's incredible to wow. hear. And I understand that that kind of relationship between filmmakers, a crew that really works together and does such great work, but also a director and a composer. That's in some ways a sacred bonding. Well, I'm very blessed. And I'm blessed that he's been so loyal to all of us, to me uh, particularly. And it's been a relationship that's lasted over a decade. Mm. And, That's right. And, you know, he's... He is my career. He made That's my longer career, than so. most marriages in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, you said in an interview that he'll let you try everything and he'll let you fall flat on your face if you're willing to do and, and that you've done that before. Can you talk about a little bit about like some of those experiences early on with, with Breaking Bad and the, the trial and error? Um, what was the initial sound that he wanted for the show, and how many times did you take a swing and go back and forth with that? Well, to start, I mean, this is not a, a phenomenon that it was only at the beginning. This is something that we're always experimenting, we're always pushing, we're always, uh, I'm always throwing things at him that I fully believe have about a 5% chance of <laughs> sticking to the wall, um, just because it's good for us. 
It's good for us to push. It's not to get comfortable. Uh, and certainly every time there's a new uh, branch of the of the Breaking Bad universe, or mm. whether it was Breaking Bad in the beginning, Better Call Saul when we started that, or El Camino here, um, we really do sit down and reevaluate everything mm. and, and, and start from, from scratch. Um, but going back to the very beginning of Breaking Bad, I think when I was – um, lucky enough to be, start working on the pilot. I was involved with it. Um, Vince was at a point where he didn't really know where to go with the music. I think he had tried um, some things just sort of out from his own wheelhouse and his own personal um, take on things that he liked, um, and it wasn't really clicking right. It wasn't uniform enough. It didn't have a, a, a unified message. And, and I think we learned together, and which is always the best way, um, how, to, how to score that project and, and, and what would work. Um, but obviously what I, I brought to it and what I was pretty adamant about from the very beginning was that it had to be, uh, it had to be arresting to listen to. It had to be... Um, unique enough that when you heard it, you knew that it was a special show because it was a special show. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you can't watch the pilot of Breaking Bad and, and, and not be immediately absorbed into it and think it's even now. Yeah. Uh, and, it's the greatest and, pilot I've ever seen. I watched it again uh, just recently and saw the pants yeah. coming down in slow yeah. motion. Thought, I don't know if I've seen that before. That's original. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it was shot on film, and it looked like a film, and it felt like a big movie, and it, it, you know, it stands up now in an era where there's a lot of really good TV. Yeah. Twelve years ago, when I first saw it, right long before it aired, I mean, there was just nothing like it. I want to, I want to know a little bit about the flavor that you explore, which I guess Kenny, you said yesterday we were talking about a couple days ago that it had a western feel. And it reminded me a bit of a picture called Broken Arrow that I worked on many years ago, which hmm. the composer said, I mean, it's a movie about nuclear war. And somebody said, it's really a Western. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Did someone ever say to you, Breaking Bad is really a Western? Or is that just a reference that we internally thought? No, no. I think that's that's been said, uh, you know, Vince Gilligan often said, I think, that he thought of it, uh, at least at the beginning uh, as a postmodern Western, so how mm. he refer referenced okay. it, uh, and we definitely did talk about a lot of westerns, and we taught we still. I mean, some of Vince's favorite films are you know those those old Italian westerns, yeah, and uh, and we reference those a lot when it comes to uses of music, uses of sound in general, not just music, mm. um, and it, it, you know, I think there are moments in Breaking Bad where. That really applied. Some, not so much, honestly. Yeah. I mean, it's a very complicated story. And we went to, you know, great lengths to evolve musically as the show evolved. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the music you hear in my score in season one, you would never hear in season three, let alone season six. It's all, it's all very, very different because all the characters are, are constantly evolving and pretty quickly evolving. Is that actually. difficult to be to evolve the music or in a way that's organic and not necessarily saying, oh, well, we kind of did this theme or this this kind of arrangement for a scene that was like this before. Let's channel that a little bit. Is it hard to kind of break maybe, you know, the, the, the expectations of what something should be? 
Not really, I don't think, because I, I, I feel like, and I've been blessed to be given this role and working yeah. with Vince on this stuff, that I feel like I'm very much a part of that storytelling process. So when I go into it each week, you know, I'm very cognizant of where all of my characters are and where the story is. And we have go to, you know, uh, we have spotting sessions that last the better part of an entire day mm-hmm. talking about music, talking about what we're going to do with the music, what the music needs to do story-wise, much more than music-wise. And there are spotting sessions, I know we've observed a few, that are uh, a lot of work, <laughs> for, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And there are spotting sessions that are fun. And it seems mm-hmm. like there's an element of this that is probably a lot of creativity. Oh, very much so. You know, And we, we take a lot of uh, pride in it, uh, and, and not only in the music, but in the sound as a whole. We spot music and sound together. Uh, so we have a lot of back and forth between the sound crew, the Foley guys and the sound effects people and the mm-hmm. ADR and all that stuff um, because it all plays into what's going to be effective sonically. Uh, and if we're both fighting you know, over the same scene, then obviously right. you know, that, yeah, that creates that an issue. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of that that, that goes on. Um, I was very, to get back to your earlier point, I was very wary very early on um, not to stamp big themes hmm. on any of the characters in, in, in Breaking Bad and honestly in most everything I work on because uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is the reason you mentioned is that I knew that these characters were going to evolve a lot. And right. So to stick them, right, you know, with, uh, you know, whatever. Here's, the, here's, yeah, your yeah. <laughs> here's your melody. Here's your melody. You know, I think, I think as uh, TV in particular has gotten much more sophisticated, um, you know, part of that is a recognition that the audience is more sophisticated than that. They don't need to hear, you know, that theme every time they see Jesse Pinkman. They right. know who Jesse Pinkman is. Yep. You know what I mean? So I think there's a, there's a, there's a, a way to avoid hopefully uh, giving each character some sonic space. Uh, maybe it's an orchestrational, broadly speaking identity sure. uh, without nailing them down to, to a specific theme. It's yep. also a very postmodern approach to scoring in that in traditional old-fashioned movies, characters had these light motifs. They had yes. themes. Directors in the last 10, 15, 20 years have become allergic to how themes can be manipulative. You know, you're going to feel this about the character, so composer, play it. Mm-hmm. And what you just described is a very modern, new trend, but I don't know if it's a trend after 10 years, in composing that the composer stands back and creates some atmosphere and a little foundation, but does not manipulate the emotional life of a character or a scene. And it's um, interesting to just hear you say that, that you don't go there. Well, you're absolutely right. And again, I just think that, you know, the more sophisticated what is getting produced gets, um, the less of a role that, that that kind of very black or white definition of what the music can do, uh, the less it works. And honestly, the joy of a Breaking Bad and certainly many other projects like that is that everybody brings, every viewer brings their own predetermined 
feelings about things uh, into watching it. And that is, to me, part and parcel of engrossing folks into something, letting them be personally involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there are Breaking Bad fans who would defend Walter White to the very last episode. <laughs> yep. Like he, he was a golden god who could do no wrong. And there are others who found him despicable at the end of the pilot. And that's good. That's great. Yeah. And certainly you don't want music saying at the end of the pilot, a bad Walter guy. White is a bad guy. Yep. Well, that's the, because con- that's the contemporary exactly. approach, which is there's a three-part uh, relationship. It's audience, music, filmmaker. Each get to bring into the center as opposed to filmmaker and composer tell the audience how to feel. And right. it, it's really wonderful. I think before we go deeper on some of these projects, there's been a lot of question about certainly how you not only got the gig, but I realized reading about you that you went to Sarah Lawrence. I didn't know that. So you Mm. must have some East Coast, I don't know if it's origins or you flew East to go to Sarah (laughs) Lawrence. Yeah, where'd you grow up and how'd you you get an interest in music? uh, So grew up in suburban D.C., so uh, East Coast. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, kid growing up for sure. Um, my parents, uh, I come from a very musical family, although neither of my parents are professional musicians. Mm-hmm. Very musical. My parents met uh, singing in the Duke Chapel Choir. Nice. In the 60s. Okay. Uh, and so uh, I was very ingrained in my sister and I, I have a younger sister, um, that you know music was part of what you did as an education growing up. And so I started classical piano when I was five. And uh, did a bunch of, you know, trooping up and down the East Coast through recitals and competitions and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, it, it that foundation obviously is huge to everything I do, if nothing else, the keyboard skills alone. But, but certainly all the theory and all those things uh, were ingrained in me young. Sight reading? Yeah, although I'm not as good at that anymore as I should be. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that that's all deep in the background. But... Interestingly, the classical background was all regurgitative as a kid. It was it was learning, and I was ingesting it all that knowledge, um, but it wasn't creatively that interesting to me. Uh, and it wasn't until I was a teenager uh, and I got introduced to electronic music and electronic gadgetry and MIDI and all these things that were new when I was a teenager. Um, that I got inspired to make music mm. that was my own. Was there a band or something that, that led you to that interest, or was it just the, the physical instruments that you came across? No, I think it was really the physical, tactile instruments. I mean, I, you know, mm. I loved all kinds of music as a kid, as I do now. I mean, I listen to a lot of classical music, still do, but I, you know, I listen to all of the, the you know, pop music and you know, classic rock, I mean, everything. And so, yeah, it, was, it wasn't so much that I wanted to make a specific type of music. It's just that for whatever reason, I think because the, the piano and the classical instruction was so much that, it was school, mm-hmm. it was instruction. It didn't feel like a, a means to be creative. I never looked at it that way. Um, that when I sort of took this other turn and saw that, well, these, hey, my keyboard skills are actually kind of useful here to do something that's very, very different. And it's, it's a, a very experimental at the time. Mm-hmm. so new um, that um, I, I really delved into it. And then it wasn't until later when I was at Sarah Lawrence that I 
started to come back around and marry the two. So mm. then, then hell, here's here now I can take this what I've found about how to be creative musically through electronic music and blend it with my classical knowledge and classical instruments. Uh, and honestly, that's the foundation of my that's entire so cool. career. Yeah, and yeah. you started to write. You think predominantly while you were in college, you started to compose. Yeah, I mean, I was making in, in high school. I was making music, but it was all electronic, mm. and it was and it was derivative, of course, like anyone who's just making their first steps at making music. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it wasn't until uh, until college that I had that the the tools, I think, and the sort of freedom to be able to explore to, to a those bit. things. And it's also where I it was challenged to. Uh, think about music as a partner to another art form. Mm. So there's, you know, the things, uh, music for film, obviously is an ex- obvious example uh, and what I made a career of, but I did a lot of music for theater. I did a lot of music for modern dance. I did mm-hmm. a lot of that kind of stuff when I was young. And, and that really opens your eyes to that collaborative process. Was, was film it- and TV on your radar at any point? during this process or did that come later on i'm I'm curious what what moved you into that new realm of uh yeah it was always on my radar i think even you know young you know i i I, my uh my father was a was a big audiophile and we had like a really early home theater system in our basement Mm -hmm. you know long before that was a thing Mm -hmm. and uh and we watched movies really loud and talked about the music and uh and so you know that was always a love and I think, um, honestly, looking at it pragmatically, uh, I had a lot of friends who were more talented players than I am who went on, you know, but, uh, you know, to do classical as a living, you know, it's, it's, that's a very tough road to hoe. And, uh, and, and it also doesn't have that collaborative thing that, that, that I fell in love with that that I really felt was and know crucial to the experience I, I I can always sit in a room and make my own music for myself you know and but to to be able to be part of something larger that's uh, a collective vision uh, it's just so much more fulfilling I think and and you know in a nuts and bolts way to be honest uh, uh, a, a more reliable way to make a living yeah. Yep. Was it during this period? I, I noticed that you had an association with Philip Glass of some variety. Was it while you were at Sarah Lawrence? No, after. Um, so I um, interned in a lot of studios in, in New York while I was uh, a student in college. And um, one of those uh, studio managers became a friend of mine. It wasn't, um, or was it Jim Keller? No, but Jim Keller's part of this story. That's the name I wanted uh, to remember because... <laughs> Philip Glass's publisher, correct? Yes, I know yes. Jim, and uh, I knew his brother, Cord Keller, who was a filmmaker, but Jim Eight, was... Six, fam- seven, five, three, three, oh, nine, <laughs> the co-author. Yes. Uh, I don't know if I'll have to pay a royalty to sing that, but <laughs> we have now have <laughs> Dave Porter and Robert Kraft duetting on a big <laughs> pop hit, but I know that Jim... Was there and I? Who was the studio manager? Was it Nico Muley? Was down there? No, I didn't know Nico. Um, you know, I worked directly for. So the, the 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 very abbreviated part of that story is that I took the uh, that studio manager friend of mine out to lunch and literally ended up sitting next to um, Mr. Keller. 
Yeah, nice. Uh, who he knew because he lived next door to him or down the hall from him in Battery Park City or some crazy thing like that. Of course. And he happened to manage mention that they were uh, looking for a new studio assistant. And so I interviewed over there the next day. Um, you know, the Phillips, I don't think it's there anymore, but for many, many, many years, he Philip had a recording studio uh, in uh, downtown New York. Correct. Uh, just north of Houston mm-hmm. on Broadway called The Looking Glass. And all kinds of people came through there, both producers and young Poets. chumps like me and, and and all that stuff. But uh, but Philip, it did, there was a lot of music they went through, other, there, through there other than just Philip's. But Philip's stuff was mostly produced by a guy named Michael Reisman, who's been his right-hand man for a long, long time. Yeah. And, and so I worked for him mostly. And you learned just the ropes of... TV and film, the the because there's a lot of like verbiage and stuff. If you walk into this avenue, it, it's completely different than just producing music. There's a lot of stuff to learn. Is that where you learned basically how it works? Uh, more, mostly by being a fly on the wall. Yeah, more than anything else. Yeah, I think the you know the important part of that for me uh, was coming out of an academic environment where I could do whatever I wanted and had and made an immense amount of freedom creatively and time and you know to to come into from that and get thrown into a professional environment um where there's an absolute hierarchy of how things work and there's deadlines and there's budgets and there's you know rules and things to follow uh you know was was an eye-opening world for me to see how it was done Uh, but i feel very blessed to have had that experience just because because even even with all of that creative restriction, it was still an amazingly creative place, obviously. I mean, given who's involved, you know. And I would be scrubbing floors and, and, and fetching burritos for <laughs> not only, you know, uh, whoever was working on whatever Philip was projects were working on, but, you know, David Bowie, Tori Amos. You wow. Know, Susan. So you, 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 you know, got surreal, people. yeah. You yeah, got David Bowie a burrito. Uh, <laughs> maybe a who knows oh a boito that's pretty good um and i know you shifted from new york to la and you mentioned in an interview that 9-11 played a role in that a little bit with the business yeah. started dropping can that's that's pretty interesting uh yeah i mean you know i think we all uh have these moments in our lives where we we've been dwelling on a decision or dwelling on or, or known that there was a path uh, that you've been reticent to take that first step mm-hmm. on. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was in a situation in my late 20s uh, where I had gone on from doing the studio work, which was much more engineering when I was young and just writing my own music, uh, and got my start in New York doing the kind of work that's in New York. There's commercials there in those days there were tv documentaries which required scores now mm. it's all library music but i cut my teeth doing you know any biographies and Lovely. nature you know stuff in my 20s and as a 28 year old or whatever i was making a fortune you know for me i was i was doing great i loved it so there but in the back <laughs> of my head um creatively i knew that in order to be satisfied i needed to be working on dramatic stuff and to the extent that that was available to me in New York, um, I knew it just what didn't compare to Los Angeles. And I'd hedged my bets and, you know, hemmed and hawed about it, made a lot of trips out here. Um, I used to come and, and stay at the, the Riot Hyatt on 
on Sunset Gotta Boulevard. Gotta do it. Did you get for a weeks? Literally for did weeks. Did you throw any televisions out the I window? I did not. No, I did no physical damage. I think that's a requirement <laughs> after a certain amount of time. But yeah, I mean, it was the thing to do and, and just drove around LA and, and tried to familiarize myself with it. Obviously tried to get whatever meetings I could get. Yep. But in the end, um, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was around, I guess it was 2000. I moved here in early 2002. So at the end of, as we were, I had a, a, a company with a group of guys and we were doing this commercial kind of music and doing well. Um, but uh, on 9-11, basically the city stopped and a lot of production stopped going forward. So we had been booked well into the end of 20, 2001, I guess. And a lot of that work evaporated. And of course we would have been fine. And I'd been in New York a long time. I came to New York when it was down, wrote it up, wrote it down, wrote hmm. it up and down, you know, and it would mm-hmm. have gone, it would all would have come back, but it was an impetus for me. It was a, just a, it just happened to happen at a moment in time um, where it made it easy to, to make a big change. And uh, and so that's what I did. I think that for a lot of our listeners, this exact moment in your life is probably as fascinating as any because so many want to know what happened to a composer to launch them and to hear how random a lot of it is, how indecisive you were. That it, uh, you know, and that's sure. one of those things you think about. You know, nine eleven obviously impacted a lot of things, but this is something that comes you know ultimately is kind of the next step or the step after that where you start to see an industry change a little bit and you start to see decisions made off of that and you know there's this kind of evolution taking place and uh a a different world that starts to become a reality for a lot of people but um that's really interesting that that's what part of what led to your own yeah kind of and desire. again just timing i mean i you know i mm-hmm. i i watched the towers fall from my window but mm, but wow. i it doesn't i was no more affected by it than anybody else mm-hmm. personally, thank God. So, but it just, it was, it was a moment in time. You know, you right. have these moments where um, you, you self-evaluate and, and you, you decide, you know, I was getting to the point where a few more years down the road, I might've been married kids sure not able to make that kind of big decisive yeah. move across the country to a city where i honestly didn't know anyone yep what and ifs. to be fair what ifs. and to be fair i got here and sat on my ass for two years and i think watched that's a lot a of reruns i think that's a rule you know? when you move from new york to la yep. you have to come out with great <laughs> excitement yep. and then stare at the phone for i think it's between 18 months and two years alternate they, between they, the beach and the staring right at the phone. they put yes. that in front of you and also have a lot of thoughts about should I go back? Yep. Should I consider roofing as an industry? Yeah. Uh, the garment <laughs> business? Yeah, yes. when you got here, I'm curious just for people that may want to take that plunge, like what did you do? What do you do you just was it the yellow pages? I mean, at that time, like what what was your approach to to get your name out there to get meetings? I mean, you had some contacts with the with your previous work experience, I'm sure, but very few to be honest, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I think that's that's part and I'm glad I thought this and glad I didn't know better when I made the movie. And, you know, I thought of course that my New York credits would, you know, at least get me in some oops or yeah, no, no, not at all. <laughs> not, not in the slightest. Um, yeah, I, I tried, I'm not, you know, an inherently go out there and be social person, but I, I did push myself to do that as much as I could. I think they call that today 
networking. Networking, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, I I think uh, it, it you go through, you know, when you move somewhere new, especially a place like L.A., you make a bunch of friends who, you know, think, oh, this is great. And then six months later, they're not your friends at all. Well, it's you, friends you, in air quotes. Yeah, you're, <laughs> I mean, you're just, just to get you out of the house. Or they, or they, move, nothing else, they right? move two freeways away and then they can't right, be your friend anymore. Can't, it's like yeah, another country. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I had never, I moved here at 30. I'd never owned a car. I'd never been around. I moved to New York when I was 18. So, um, so yeah, I plopped myself down in the Miracle Mile, which seemed like the most centrally kind of spot. Uh, and I could still walk to the grocery store and the gym and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I just lived for a couple of years, yeah. you know, I mean, not, not more. I watched an awful lot of law and order reruns and because nice. <laughs> yeah, I also admit I never had a TV in, in New York either, but it felt like I would really be lonely at, for that. When part. the two year mark crossed, did the phone ring one day and you went, Hey, this is something. No, it, it of course, Was it gradual. Yeah. It happens way more gradually than that. So, um, I managed to make uh, uh, some good friends with uh, uh, some folks uh, who are music editors. Perfect, and uh, and that's and who are you know my closest friends today. Bruno Roussel, who's my music editor on many projects that I work on, still was the music editor on a show called Six Feet Under for HBO. Mm-hmm. Nice, uh, and he uh, got double booked on the final season of Six Feet Under, part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and needed someone to fill in, and I was on the couch doing nothing. <laughs> but I knew Pro Tools. Let me look at my calendar. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and he was very kind to think of me, and uh, and so I jumped in there, and that was that was the experience, the LA experience. Cool to be able to sit in spotting sessions. Uh, Alan you know, with Ball, Alan Ball, Alan Poole. You know, Alan Poole, Tom yep. Newman. Tom Newman wrote the theme, but he wasn't the the, the, the uh, day-to-day composer. Yeah. Um, so, and just be around those bright people making really, really great TV uh, was was fantastic. And just the nuts and bolts of how it worked. Obviously, yep. the TV thing, wildly different from anything I had done in TV in New York, just, mm-hmm. you know, at, on a much bigger scale. So, yeah, through all that, and then um, the two music supervisors... Uh, for the licensed songs on Six Feet Under were Gary Calamar mm-hmm. and Thomas Golovich. Yep. And so I, after this series was over, just, of course, kept in touch with those guys, and they knew that I was a composer who was slumming it. it so they were okay with the fact you were a music editor? Yep. And, but they had heard music or understood that you were really a composer? Later on. I certainly wasn't like, you know, <laughs> shoving that down yeah. there in their gullet at Smart. the beginning. <laughs> Here, but, you know, as, you know, as, as things came on, and it was, and it was Gary who, uh, got, got me in the mix. Great. You know, for my first TV show, uh, which was a, uh, one season show on TNT called Saved. Uh, and then once you get your first show, you know, suddenly you have an avenue uh, to have, you know, an agent. Correct. You sure. know, mm-hmm. want to collect money from you yep. and, and therefore represent you and and, and you're on your way. And a little bit of a track record. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, Thomas, the other music supervisor, uh, was uh, hired uh, just actually the first time I saw the Breaking Pad pilot was at Thomas Golovich's house on his TV the day before he interviewed with Vince for the job for music supervisor. Wow. Yeah. It's a great we, tale. We, we walked through it together just to talk about 
what 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 one would say, you know, creatively about what the music should be doing. That's a pretty great moment, I think, to take a breath and think. Here is it's sort of that cinematic moment where you have two people about their lives are about to completely <laughs> transform. Yeah. With a television show the next night, but they don't even know what's going to happen next. I'm, I do want to ask you about some of the instruments used in Breaking Bad. Sure. Because should we tease this? You want to? Should we take a Let's break and come this. back? Yeah. Okay. The instrumentation, how your classical background meets all of the uh, amazing sounds that uh, that you work into the show. Uh, I'm really curious to see how those kind of come together because it must be a constant battle between some of your training and other things. But we'll uh, we'll ask that right after we come back. Love it. We'll play this out. We'll be back. Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. What about strange lands and escape from the everyday? It's brilliant, George. Before anyone knew them by name. Who's a good boy, Indiana? 400 grand? Let me explain it. George, that's our money. Blockbuster. Following the spectacular failures. Sir, sir, are you all right? And the unexpected triumphs. Can you believe it? I told you, George. I told you. A six-part immersive audio series. Blockbuster. Experience the entire six-part series ad-free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other platforms. Oh, hey, it's Benjamin Valfish. Uh, you're listening to Score the Podcast. Back to the show. Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio. We're here with Dave Porter. This is uh, the Cousins cue, if you recognize this. This is the, the Twins those badass twins that just wreck people. It's freaking me out. Yeah. I went and last night I rewatched the uh, parking lot scene with Hank. Mm. Oh, so that dense. might be the best scene on TV ever made. <laughs> I haven't seen that in a while. I have to watch that again, too. Oh, it's great. It's just such great drama. So this cue, Vince Gilligan has been quoted in saying that uh, he, he this is one of his favorites because of the, the use of the, was it an Aztec whistle or what did you use to yeah so when i was living uh in in my uh, miracle mile hollywood uh place i was fortunate enough uh to have a great neighbor uh a guy named julio moreno who's still a friend uh who uh was a percussionist from mexico city and uh i was this was the beginning of season three this is the brian cranston episode that he directed that starts season three. Uh, and I had been thinking about these two cousins and trying to figure a way to make uh, them intimidating and obviously have that presence that we needed them to have without you know, hopefully relying on the, you know, the very obvious bad guy tropes. Yeah, sure. Uh, and they're especially tricky because they don't speak. I was going to say, yeah, that's a big deal. They, they say is. maybe a couple words throughout yeah. the whole series. So so I, in a sense, was their voice, uh, musically speaking. Uh, and, and to be able to create something that felt authentic for them uh, was important to me. And obviously it also launches the season, and it was, it was a big moment. Um, and a music-driven moment, which obviously as a composer you always want to take special mm. care with. Uh, and so I had been thinking about 
um, you know, how, how to tie them to Mexico or at least not the U S right from, mm-hmm. from, you know, places South of here. Uh, and, uh, and I had gotten into a, a late night discussion, uh, with my friend about, um, instrumentation that is, um, from a Mexico pre-colonization. Mm-hmm. Right? So, uh, and he happened to have some, fascinating instruments which we later augmented with other things um and uh some you know really giant aztec derivative drums which are in oh, here cool. and uh, and the thing that vince mentioned which he, he loved because we talked about it a lot was uh an aztec war whistle uh which is just a, a carved wooden thing that has this immensely shrill and terrifying uh, sound to it all, by design i mean it was meant to intimidate the folks you were about to try to conquer. Who, who As the what. cousins do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so that, that became um, a, a uh, that and that, and that rhythm that you, that you hear in there uh, became sort of their, their little signature. And, you know, I, honestly, I, as always with working on the Vince Gilligan stuff, I don't know where this stuff is going. So I had no idea how much use that would, I would have for me and much less would I ever have imagined in another series better call Saul years and years later, uh, bringing them back. Yeah. I was actually curious about that too, with the show, how much Mm -hmm. do you know in advance? Are you able to, I know you don't rely on themes and you're not a a fan of doing that, but Mm -hmm. is, are are you sort of tipped off that something is going to happen or this person may not last or vice versa. So you can kind of keep, with a theme like that, if you do create something? Generally not. Um, you know, I have a standing understanding with Vince. I think that if there's something that I need to know, hmm. pressing, that's coming down the road, um, he'll, they'll let me know. Um, but they all know that while I'm privy to reading the scripts, I don't read them. Um, because when I sit down to watch, uh, it helps me to watch as a fan would watch. I'm lucky enough to be last in the process. Almost everything is done. So many creative decisions have been made since the script, mm. right, which have changed how this thing is going to look from how it was lit, how it was shot, how it was edited, how it was acted, all those things inform how I feel like I need to do best do my job. Uh, and I find, honestly, that sometimes scripts can tie me up because I – then have some preconceived notion about how in my brain I think it's going to look, but it doesn't look, or it doesn't comes out yeah. some other way. And if you know, you can never get that. Same thing with, back. with temp music. And I read that that this show didn't isn't presented with temp music. Was that just early on, or was that through the whole series? Never ever once have we used temp music. On That's great. Anything with Vince. It's from the pilot episode. Of, well, from the, yeah, honestly, from the pilot episode on. Um, so yeah, there's no preconceived notions about where music should go. There's no. Uh, Nobody, and, you know, thanks to and to the bravery of a lot of people to do that because, you know, a picture editor is not inclined to show their work without any music in it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that really is putting your work out there uh, without a lot of extra sauce that might yeah. make it, you know what I mean? You have to, it's got to stand on its own, but mm. it does. Obviously, we have a tremendous crew and, and same to the executives who watch it. You know, they have to be able to watch early cuts of these shows that don't have any music in them. Uh, and that 
that requires training and an understanding and a yeah, and trust a bel- and a trust in us, obviously, to get it right. And you're with this this show. I mean, you're classically trained, and this music is is full of unique instruments, a lot of percussion. It's not a classical composer style score. So I'm curious. Yeah, and this has been something that's fascinated me in in kind of doing a little bit of a deep dive to some of your some of your scores that you've done. How do you write something that is, you know, not using the traditional tools? Um, is it a lot of work at, you know, your workstation and just trying things out? Is it, are you writing things musically and trying to bring textures in uh, as you go? How, how do you assemble something where you're working with so many colors that have never been used before? Well, that's a big question. It is. Uh, and you know, we could be here all day on that. But I think, you know, if, if I was to break it down to its simplest, um, for me, um, it's about, it is about that inspiration. It's mm-hmm. about the creativity. It's about the inspiration that I find in sounds that I hear that are new. Mm. Uh, that I think can be bent or manipulated in some way um, to evoke whatever feeling it is that I'm trying to do. So in in that sense, uh, when I sit down to write, um, it's a huge amount of preparation before I ever write. It's about having a huge stockpile of interesting sounds, textures, motifs, all of those things. Mm-hmm. It's kind of in a locker. It's about having immediate access to instruments that inspire me. It's about, and I've been so blessed in my career, obviously, honestly sitting down and being ex- inspired by what I'm about to work with. Mm, sure. And, you know, that's, the, you know, it's so much easier to be inspired when you're working on something that's amazing. Well, right? even to think you're, to begin with. you're looking at footage that doesn't necessarily need music means yeah. it is so strong that of course um, yeah you're not being asked and i wonder if there's some some crossover with the kind of sound you know one of my friends is a sound designer Mm -hmm. and takes a little portable recorder everywhere he goes and uh you know he'll brush up against the car with a grocery bag or something and go oh that's good and then and then record it and so he has a bank of all these weird sounds um some of them so abstract he doesn't know what he's going to do with them but um but is is that at all are you do you hear things just in everyday life and you think oh there's there's something there there's an instrument there yeah sometimes Mm -hmm. less now remember those two years when i sat on my ass (laughs) (laughs) that's when i was had the time to do that stuff you know and i'd lean heavily on 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 you know experiments and things that i did with music even now that I did back then because it's, yep. it's, it's in my, in my locker. Yeah. When you record these sounds, do you write a cue with just regular drums to get a, a feel for what you want and then start searching for instruments? No. Or do you just have a bank ready to go? You're working the, with these sounds. The from sounds the are, the sounds are the inspiration and they are. And I, I, I take, um, you know, one of the things that, that I've learned through a lot of, practice I think and and love for doing it is uh, making these 
sounds that your ear might not immediately associate as an instrument, right? We all hear a violin. We know that's an instrument. We know what it does and what it's capable of. But to to take a sound that is new to people's ears and make it feel organic, make mm. it feel emotional, make it, uh, you know, whatever, fire those synapses in, in your brain that – um, that maybe some other instrument might do, um, but this is doing it uh, in a new way, mm-hmm. and I and I, I love that. I love it when it comes that comes in that. And there's uh, so many ways to do that. I mean, that's you know, you mentioned found sounds, and that's one thing. There's obviously you know instruments of all stripe from being you know I use a lot of world instruments on Breaking Bad, a lot of instruments from all over the world. Um, that as long as they weren't Western. Right. right, they were they were gonna be new, and especially if you're purposefully combining, you know, drums from Kenya with a flute from Thailand, then mm. that that combination is gonna be inherently different, weird, and that weird, does kind of jarring, work with the, yeah, the postmodern, you know, with Vince kind of yeah. setting out this postmodern idea of things and being able to blend those different kind of feels mm-hmm. um, and, and into something new. As I mentioned earlier, for someone who grew up in classical, mm. you bring the funk <laughs> to these cues. The cues have a rhythmic feel that's really great. Let's it's, hear this main one again. It's subtle. And Kenny, do you have? Do we have a something from El Camino? We do to talk through. We do. This is a good example of this. And my question Which is: comes out today. Have you always been rhythmic? And good sense of feel, because that's, you know, listen, from someone who makes pop records, <laughs> you can feel stuff all the time. And this feels great. These Thank cues. you. I appreciate that. I, and I, I do love, obviously, rhythm and percussion. And I think, honestly, that stems, you know, less from a classical background, but from a piano background. Because a nice. piano is inherently a percussion instrument. It is a percussion <laughs> instrument. You know, and you don't think of it that way necessarily, yeah. but it is what it is. Well, I feel it in these and, cues, and I feel the really great rhythm feels. And then we have this cue from El Camino, which Dave uh, hooked us up with to, to talk about. Sure. How did the process change for doing El Camino? Is it different that it's a film? Are the cues longer or different or more cinematic? Was there any noticeable change for you? Uh, yes, there was, and there wasn't. I think uh, process-wise, you know, we we view you know working on Breaking Bad episodes. They're like little films. I mean, it's it's not not wildly different. The difference comes in uh, having time mm-hmm. and having resources. Yeah, which you just don't have in television. Television. I'm getting an episode, and by the time I get the next episode, exactly a week later, I've had to turn around this one. So it, it's a it's a fast moving train. You have to be uh, decisive uh, in a way. You have to, one of the things that TV has taught me, um, without question, which is such a valuable skill as a composer in media, is to identify when you're heading down the wrong path huh. and nip it in the bud fast before you lose a whole day. Right, that yeah. you don't have uh, meandering down a creative process that isn't going to lead you to where you need to be. This was a little different because I had the time. 
Uh, we had weeks to work on it, which I don't normally have. We had a bigger budget than we, I would have for an episode of, or two episodes, I guess you would say, with equivalent time length of of a, of a feature film. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we got to experiment with more, and that was great. And I got to involve Vince more, which was the part that I really loved and I was so excited to do. Um, prior to working on El Camino, Vince Gilligan had never once stepped foot in my studio. Really? Never been. It was all sending yep. audio and back and, and forth. And emails. that is not at all unusual in television. Mm-hmm. That is the norm. Yeah, in you gotta. You're There's in no time. time they don't, I don't have the time, and they showrunners definitely don't have the time. And so that was an, so, an enjoyable process. Oh, having fantastic. him in the studio with you. Yeah. Was, was he? Is he musical? Did he? Was he just kind of sitting back and letting you do your thing, or was he chiming in with, try this, try that? Well, I mean, we certainly talked about. Um, Musically, what worked and what didn't work. I don't. Vince has never been one to talk about, you know, trying to oboe here. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, yeah, I yeah. think that's not his. He's certainly wonderful at, <laughs> excuse me, allowing the people he works with do their thing. Uh, and so we talk about it much more in in story points, or maybe as an actor might ask, you know, emotional rhythm. What's my What's my role in the scene? Mm-hmm. What am I, you know, that's. That, those are the kinds of ways we talk. You know, sometimes we talk in colors, sometimes we talk visually, but uh, never about the specifics of music uh, other than, you know, this is achieving the desired goal or it isn't. And that's the role of a director. Here's how I feel. Right. Here's what I think the story is. Uh, and it's confusing because people sometimes think a director has to say exactly what you said. This should be an oboe or I think this should be in 3-4. Not at all. This is melancholy to me. This is bittersweet. This is actually a great hopeful moment buried in a tragedy. Exactly. You know, those are nuanced emotional things that directors mm-hmm. say that you have the unbelievable difficult job of translating right. into music. Exactly right. And I, th- and I think the opposite is also true. I think that people view composers' scores and think that, you know, from one project to the next and think, Oh, this composer's amazing, and this composer, you know, does this or this score. Rather than looking at every individual project and understanding that what that composer's role is in that room, right, for that project and their relationship with that director defines everything about how the score is going to come out. And we are absolutely should be and absolutely always are subservient to that greater goal of what's going to make the project best. And the director or the showrunner is the helm of that. And so, of course, there are opportunities when composers get a project that allows them to be very showy, for example, or, or not. But, and all of those are fair game, and they're all correct. There's no right answer there, as long as the role of the music was supportive in the greater goal of making you know, a great piece of TV or totally. Do you, do yep. you remember? Because I know that this show it took a couple seasons for it to catch, and I'm just curious if there was a pivotal moment where you remember, like, wow, we have the biggest show on TV. Yeah, when that's one of the neat things about the El Camino is that um, some of this has come around full circle, and that what made people what what took Breaking Bad from a show that um, people talked about having seen at their cocktail parties but actually hadn't watched to one that everybody had seen at the water cooler and was talking actively about was Netflix 
when the first few seasons of Breaking Bad made it to Netflix, suddenly everybody caught up with it. Mm-hmm. And that's why you saw this massive increase in understanding of it. It became, went from being a critically acclaimed thing to a pop culture thing. And it happened very fast. It happened in a summer, honestly, when that first few seasons became available on Netflix. And then people were caught up, and then they were watching it live on AMC. And, and then it became, you know, the juggernaut it was. I mean, obviously, enormously more people watched it at the end of the series than at the beginning, which is rare for a TV show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, in fact, we were, we were just desperate the show would come back for season two. I mean, it made, it made it publicly <clears throat> acceptable to just yell, bitch. <laughs> yeah. everywhere yeah and so now the movie now we've now we've come around full circle and and the movie is gonna it's gonna be in some theaters but it's mostly a netflix release on uh on first yep. right and then it's Perfect. gonna end up at amc down the road which is family to us so yep. you know it's 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 been very great. cool out and, today go see it and Watch i assume it. el camino is in some ways a button on this part of your life you know, it's always hard to say, I, right? Yeah, it could be El to Camino too. Look, I sat. Well, bet, better call Saul too. Yeah, yeah. I sat. Uh, we uh, collectively, as a, as a creative group, uh, um, got to sit at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery and watch the last episode of Breaking Bad live. It was a projected, you know, up there with a huge group That's of awesome. fans. And I absolutely remember thinking wow, this is the end of a chapter of my life that I will never replicate creatively. And I'm just so lucky to have had it, even if I'm, if I never work again. Yeah. And, and which was in a distinct possibility. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so now, you know, to ask, you know, I mean, El Camino, I, I certainly didn't never expected it. It was very emotional for me to go back to see these characters again, to write for these characters again, because I certainly never expected to. Um, but uh, this, and I, and I don't certainly don't expect to ever go back to it again. But you know, well, I remember when when they announced Better Call Saul, and in the world that we live in now, with all the reboots and and the mistakes that are made with continuing stories that maybe don't need to be continued, I never had any doubt about Better Call Saul, and it's just as good as uh, as we all hoped and and uh el camino just as excited i'm going to see it tonight in vince we trust oh (laughs) nice um so it is our season finale matt trader is here do we have our our corny theme get ready to play name that score the film music game where a perfect score means you yes you could be a winner now let's play Name That Score. <laughs> there it is. We feel, yeah, right right in the middle of a game show right now. Well, it sounds like five pounds of cheese based on that music. Five pounds of cheese. Five pounds of cheese. The composers always have their, their criticism of that theme. I think it's a perfect theme. Frankly. And the composer usually has a disclaimer which goes, you know, I'm going to be terrible at this. And then they crush it. So <laughs> Okay, so let me just lay out the, the basics of this okay, so good. Dave knows what uh, ridiculous nonsense we're, we're up to on this. We uh, play five famous film scores in reverse. Uh, Rob 
Robert, Kenny, and uh, our guest will all pick three multiple from three multiple choice answers. So I'll give you those three before I play the clip. The last question we give is worth double. If anyone gets all five answers right, we give away a prize on our Twitter account. Let's give it away anyway. The podcast. Yeah, yeah, man. We'll give it away anyway. Let's give it it's away the anyway. season finale. Right. Let's go all out. Uh, By the way, I've, I was in the driveway. This Aston Martin that is the prize today, the DB7, <laughs> is fantastic. It's That's w- so nice that you're paying for that, Robert. <laughs> and, and a bag of blue meth. Oh, this is amazing. Okay, we're going to keep going nice here. I'm paying for that too, Robert. <laughs> it's just rock uh, candy. So I made it. Enter, just mention hashtag name that score. All right, today's theme is science. Science. Yeah, bitch. She blinded me with science. <laughs> Uh, we also have two bonus rounds worth double points for those, a total of 10 points available. All right. Anyway, let's just jump into this. Our all time records. Kenny has 91 points. Robert has 93 points. Our guest, our composer guests from our shows so far, which I think we've done this 23 times or something like that. 100 points. Oh, They've man. schooled you guys. We're getting schooled. Okay. So we're going to uh, change that today. Your, your stats are already padded, Dave, so no, you have no pressure. <laughs> Which is good. Yeah. Uh, all right, so we'll do question number one. Remember, this is uh, in reverse. Is this from Flubber, 1997, oh, Kenny Elfman, Limitless, 2001, Paul Leonard Morgan, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, 2011, Patrick Doyle? <sighs> Probably couldn't do this forward, to be honest with you. (laughs) Flubber, (laughs) Limitless, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I can jump in right at the top, surprising all of you that I'm not sandbagging and waiting for somebody else, because I'm going to take a stretch here. Since I worked on Planet of the Apes with Patrick Doyle, long and hard, his score didn't sound like that. And I'm going to be horribly embarrassed if that was Planet of the Apes, but his score was synthy and dark and rhythmic. That I'm going flubber. I'm going flubber too. Oh, all right. Everyone's going flubber. Dave Porter, flubber. Yeah, yep. we're flubbing. It is flubber. Woo! I thought that one would be significantly easier, but yeah, you can hear the kind of quirky Elfman. There it is. Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Exactly. All right, so uh, points for everybody on that, and we're moving on to question two. Now these are all much better known uh, films. These are all future science. Mm. Minority Report, 2002, John Williams. Avatar, which is kind of future science, 2009, James Horner. Uh, and Jurassic Park, 1993, John Williams. I'm going to go again. Robert has wow. this. It's definitely Avatars. James Horner. I recorded the first two, my Minority Report and Avatar, and I saw Jet Jurassic Park. So this that game's counts. rigged. It's definitely. You say it's definitely. Well, I hear that flute. We flew that guy in from Ireland to play. <laughs> if, if it is an Avatar, I got to give the money back. I did hear the flute too. I'm going to go Avatar as well. All right. I haven't a clue, but I'm going with the room. So right. <laughs> here it is. Forward. Yeah, this is Avatar. Here's the flute. Ready? And Kenny Whistler. Is that a flute? That's a flute. It's a dude. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. Points for everybody again. Everyone's uh, undefeated so far. We're moving on to question three. Give me more that I worked on because <laughs> then I'm going to win. <laughs> Uh, all right, this next group, these are all movies that are about biology. So there's the animated Don't know much about history. Go ahead. <laughs> there's the 2001 Osmosis Jones, Randy Edelman, 2013's Side Effects, Thomas Newman, and 2015's The Martian, Harry Gregson Williams. This is by far the hardest round you've ever done. Well, it's a season finale. You guys are undefeated so far, though. I'm so. going first. Ready? I'm going The Martian. Wait, what are, what Martian. are the options again? The options here are Osmosis Jones, Marshmallow. animated film, Side Effects, Thomas Newman, and The Martian, Harry Gregson Williams. Robert, did you say, did I hear you say The Martian? Martian. I did as well. Really? That's the only one of those films I've seen. I don't remember. Same. I don't remember vocals and. I don't either. Sure. <laughs> this could be. This what's your What's your instinct, Dave? Osmosis Jones. The, side effects. Uh, side effects is Thomas Newman. The Martian. Terry Gregson Williams. And who was the composer on the first one? Because I'm only going uh, by Andy Edelman. Uh, by my knowledge of what Correct. they would, you know what I mean. Same. I don't know the yeah. scores at all, so I would. I'm going to go. I'm going to go Thomas Newman. Ooh. All right. Well, somebody obviously got this wrong. Two people got this wrong. Dave oh no! Right. What? <laughs> I knew Dave it. Got this right. I knew the composer would always try and wait a minute. It has that. Is this? Uh, is it like a Lydian kind of a thing? Just the fact that you said Lydian <laughs> gets extra points. For me, honestly, it was just the, the tip was the was the vocal because I don't remember the and vocal. I thought I would have yeah. guessed I, I would have guessed Harry Gregson. The um, vocal was going to be a tip to kind of the Lisa Gerard, Hans Zimmer, you know, using a woman's voice in something spooky. You got but, it wrong, Robert. But I got it wrong. Okay, I thought wrong. This can happen. This has happened once before yeah. that I got something wrong. All right, we're moving on to question four. Uh, so right now, Dave, uh, three, Robert and Kenny have two. And moving on to three movies that are about DNA. The Fly, 1986, Howard Shore, Gattaca, 1997, Michael Nyman, and Spider-Man, 2002, Danny Elfman. Seems too slow for Spider-Man. All right, our options, The Fly, Gattaca, Spider-Man. I'm going Gattaca for a total blind swing here. Okay. <laughs> Robert? Spider-Man. <laughs> okay. Well, to round it out, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be Fly. Fly? Yep. All right. One person got it right, and it's Dave. Oh my this is God. so unfair. Did you guys did you come up here <laughs> early, <his> Matt? Lead. <laughs> yeah. Wait, did Howard you tip Short. him off because of the fly breaking bad episode? Yeah, that was it. Oh no. I saw winks going on. Yeah, we 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 both just knew that, so it was a <laughs> yeah. the, the Galica score was more subdued, I feel yes. like. Yeah. And it's what definitely isn't And there's a little more classical. It doesn't sound elf mini to mm-hmm. me, so that was darn it. You uh, you had the right uh, instinct, Kenny. I think with uh, saying it wasn't fast enough for Spider Man. Yeah, 
See if anything. But the wrong answer. So we're moving on. Doesn't count. We're moving on to question five. Now, we have this question and two bonus questions. They're both worth double. Okay, so I'm going to win. As of right now, Dave has extended his lead. He's up four to two. Uh, So I can't lose. (laughs) Well, you could, but they would need to pull. They would need to go run the table the rest of the way. Here we go. That won't happen. So these are three films that are about cloning. And because of that, they're worth double points. Uh, The Island. (laughs) The Island, Steve Jablonski. Jurassic Park, John Williams, The Fifth Element, Eric Sarah. It's too easy. It's always too easy <laughs> with him. Dave, I'll let you go first. Where the options again are? The Island, Island Steve Jablonski, Jurassic Park, one. John Williams, yeah. The Fifth Element, Eric Sarah. Yeah, that doesn't sound like an Eric Sarah thing, so I'm going to go Williams. Okay, Robert? Williams. John Williams. All right, that one was easy. Yay! All right, so now the score is 5-3-3, to three to three, and we're moving on to question. This is our, our bonus question here. Uh, these are all virus outbreak movies. Yeah, that makes me feel better just being here. <laughs> uh, so this is, uh, let's see, we have 12 Monkeys from 1995. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Buckmaster, uh, 28 Days Later, John Murphy, and Contagion, 2011, Cliff Martinez. Cliff Martinez. Why? Because the guitar? Yeah. <laughs> mm, I'm, going, I'm going Murphy. It's Murph. Are you piggybacking? Robert? I'm telling you. It's, no, it's John Murphy because I did it. And that's the that's the cue where, where that... Uh, Irish actor is running to the boat and being chased by vampires dripping blood. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right, Kenny, you missed that one. Ugh. Play it. But it, was. it sounds almost the same forward. Yes. Just it's, so- it's a pedal on the bottom. But yeah, this is 28 Days Later. Actually, he changes the bass note. Yep, 28 Days Later. He's running towards a little boat and they're like... <laughs> At the windows. So you worked on this too? I did. Oh. It was great. Fair advantage here. All right. So moving on, last question that we have here. uh, And uh, let's see, that was worth double. I'm doing the quick math here. So we're up to. Doing the quick math? Come on, man. That's the first part of the show. Uh, We're up to uh, Dave with eight points. Robert has. What is this? Right. Close. Six points. So uh, Dave's pretty much locked this up. Kenny is too far behind See for it to matter. Um, and our last question, these are all space movies. So our options, The Right Stuff, 1983, Bill Conti. Apollo 13, 1995, James Horner. And First Man from last year, Justin Hurwitz. There's a lot of backwards Trump right there for you. The Right Stuff, Apollo 13, and First Man. I'm going Apollo 13. I'm wildly guessing on this one, I have to be honest. I'm going to go Conti. I'm with our composer. Oh, you're right. You're so right. All Kenny? those naked horns. I'm going to move it. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> 
too late. I got the buzzer first. This is from The Right Stuff, which means that uh, Dave ran the table, got all of the answers right. I told you. Oh, wow. Where's our audience? Thank you, audience. That's, that's impressive Come on, audience. stuff there. There we go. Uh, it, this is what it sounds like. Forwards. What an embarrassing famous horn line. Showing by me. I'll, I'll see myself out. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but that's it. So Dave's our big winner. Uh, Robert, congratulations on second place. Is there a second place prize? I didn't no, know. We but give away we give away uh, an a autographed uh, Breaking Bad yeah. soundtrack is what we're doing. I'm going to donate mine. Nice. Um, by the way, Dave, very impressive. Yeah. Kind of. Oh, thank you. Kind of crushed it. An extended, extended I wasn't, range. I wasn't my, expecting it. My so. guess is that during those two years you were watching reruns of L.A. Law, you were also listening to every <laughs> single score, forwards and backwards, just to make sure, wow. Yeah. Name that score. Very nice. Was any composer awesome. on the table before? Uh, uh, a lot of them. Oh, yeah. good. All right. But I, not, not with two bonus usually questions. Usually they I was going to say, I was going to say, I don't think anybody has. This is something... Please tweet us if you we'll remember the any composer that has actually nailed it 100%. That was impressive. Did you get double 800s on your college boards? No. Just say yes, because I think that would be equally impressive. <laughs> All right, so El Camino's out on Netflix. I'm going tonight to see it in theaters. Is there anything, any Easter eggs we should listen for? Anything you can... Any special instrument, anything? We've avoided spoilers successfully this whole show. Yes. Do you quote Bill Conti in any <laughs> portion of the movie? The Fly. Listen for the theme of The Fly. No, you know, all I'll say um, about it um, is, uh, you know, the, the sort of the way I feel about El Camino is it's, um, I'm dating myself here, but when... When one used to spend a lot of time listening to CDs and you listen to a, a new record by your favorite artist and it, you went through 12 tracks that were listed there and you thought, ah, oh, it's so satisfying. And then you left it running and you forgot about it and they snuck on that extra track, oh. that secret track at the end yeah. that is just so like unexpected and, and gratifying. And that's how I feel about El Camino. Oh, great. That's awesome. How about it? Can we have a round of applause? For our composer, finishing up a fabulous season two, and what a perfect ending! Really great yeah. to talk and to you. And you got uh, Better Call Saul is coming next when? year, right? Next year, right? Uh, I don't know what's been said about that, so I don't want to speculate. But but he actually. But said, I have. I will tell you that I haven't even started. And if Better he Call did Saul. tell you, he'd have to kill us, and then there would be no <laughs> season three. He, and now you know why. Obviously, there's a lot of people involved in. He'll send El the cousins Camino to or, kill us all. Right, right. <laughs> How about well, a great finale to our season? Thank you, Dave. Yeah. Thank and, you guys and, very uh, much we, for your time. We do want to thank our listeners for spreading the word, checking out the show. And, uh, you know, we started this a year ago, and it's it's blossomed, and we've had a lot of fun. And, and we couldn't do it without composers like yourself, Dave, for taking the time. We know you're super busy. So thank you. And uh, go watch El Camino. And do, do they need to catch up on Breaking Bad first? Is that a good idea? Before they see the film, couldn't hurt. It's not necessary. But okay, you know, why not? Definitely <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you haven't no seen Breaking Bad, you're blowing it. Basically, yeah, yeah. you got to um, go catch up. Well, Dave, thank you so much for your time. A reminder to our listeners to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Click subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Score the Podcast and use the hashtag Name That Score if you want to be entered to win this autographed Breaking Bad soundtrack. Yeah, I'm Robert Kraft. 
I'm Kenny Holmes. A special thank you to composer Carol and Matt Schrader for all the help this season. And uh, we'll see you next time on Score the Podcast. Hey, Score fans, we're so excited for the support of Spitfire Audio. They collaborate with people like Hans Zimmer and the Bernard Herrmann Estate to build sample libraries that elevate your music. You're about to hear a musical demo of what that sounds like. And as an exclusive to our fabulous listeners, Spitfire Audio is offering one-third off any product they sell if you use the promo code SCORE. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's me. Just go to SpitfireAudio.com and check out their selection. And remember, this offer is exclusive to Score the Podcast listeners. So take advantage of the deal. It's a limited time offer. Again, one-third off with the promo code SCORE. Here's a quick example of what some of the sounds sound like. You can get amazing sounds like the ones you just heard and many more now for a third off. A third off the price. Just make sure to use the promo code SCORE so they know we sent you.